0: So before I share, I want to tell you a story. There was um, I'm feeling kind of hot. Can I? I don't know if it's real high or not, but I'll let you deal with that. Um, So it was a few weeks ago. uh, We were having prayer ministry. This has actually been a while ago now. And uh, someone came up, and they wanted prayer, uh, and they came to Joey. And the guy said, I didn't know him. I didn't recognize him. But he said, "Uh, I was hoping you could pray for my hearing. Joey said, sure, no problem. So he laid hands on him, and he, he put his hands on his ear, and he was... He was praying for him, and you know, it's, it's your healing prayers, you know, Lord, I pray that you would restore him. Jesus is healer, would you just open up his ear and just restore his body? And then he asked me, he goes, how did how did that do? I mean, how's your hearing? And the man says, I don't know, it's at the courthouse next Tuesday. <laughs> Language messes me up, doesn't it? <laughs> Language really can mess with you um, and gets things confusing, and, and, and uh, it's hard to understand. We're preaching through Revelation, and i got to tell you, this is some tough language to read this book. Um, it is a part, it's a style of writing that we here in the West don't have anymore. You know, we can read Psalms and understand that it's poetry, and we can read the letters of the New Testament, and we can read historical accounts, and Deuteronomy is legal text, but but Revelation is a type of text that, that we don't use anymore. It's a style, I mean it's very colorful, and it uses, you know, big, bold analogies and statements and imagery, and it's very strong. And a lot of churches that try to preach through the Bible, they go all the way up, and when they're to start Revelation, they just jump right back to Genesis, because that's just we're not even gonna get into that. The language is hard, but thankfully. Thankfully, the letters to the churches are fairly straightforward. Still some bold language, still some things to kind of interpret and understand. Um, but thankfully, it's easy enough that even I might be able to give it a pass. So uh, we're going to read um, Revelation. This is the church at Thyatira. I also have heard it pronounced Thyatira. I'm going to say Thyatira if you like Newark or you like Nerk, You know, either way, it's fine. Um, so let's go ahead and read that. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a, it is the longest letter. There's a lot in there, but let's just understand what we're talking about. So to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, your service and perseverance, So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say this to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to that, to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them into pieces of pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has hears, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. So there's a whole lot going on in there. It's the longest letter. And there's some references to the Old Testament. There's some other things. So we're going to just unpack things one bit. We need to learn the story behind the story of what's going on. So in this, we have two women. This is actually the story of two different women. One is named Jezebel. And one is being called Jezebel. There's a woman here in this church, and she is being called Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is referring back to Queen Jezebel. So Jezebel's not her real name. Now, I would love it if Jezebel actually was her name, and it worked back and forth, but it's not. I don't believe, most scholars don't believe it was. It's just that woman, Jezebel. Now, I love it when they call her that woman, How many of us have muttered under our breath, that woman, when somebody was at you? In fact, even Adam, when he was asked, why, God says, why did you sin? Why did you eat of the tree? And he goes, that woman you gave me. So here we have that woman. It's not her real name. And we do this all the time. I'll call you by a different name. So, that I'm pointing out the characteristics that you have. I'm pointing out something like that. Uh, maybe we've done that before. Husbands, have you ever made the absolute mistake of calling your wife by your mother in law's name to try to make a point? It did not go well, did it? My family, um, we have one. If you've ever seen the movie Tommy Boy, anybody here seen Tommy Boy? There's a scene where he's talking about his sale and he says, he's like, Jojo the circus boy with his little pet. And he just goes on to show how when he has his sale, he just turns into like this rabid, um, he's just panicked, you know, he's, he's freaking out, right? My mother will get on a cleaning spree. Ever get on a cleaning spree the day after Christmas no, when the tree's got to come down, we'll walk into the house and everything'll be crazy and I'll look at my sister and she go, "She's Jojo today." Just don't. She's Jojo. That's our code word. When Mom's Jojo, get out. We know what that means, all right? So, he's calling her Jezebel, not because that's her name, but because that is going to tell something about her nature, about how she's acting, about what she's doing. So, let's talk about Jezebel, who she's being called. This is Queen Jezebel. Married to King Ahab. This is around 900 BC. Now, King Ahab was when um, Israel was divided into the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. He was one of the kings of Israel. And it is noted that he was one of the worst kings He'd sin worse than all the kings that had come before him. He was about fifth in line. I'm guessing. there. I'm trying to remember the list. And each one, it's funny. They talk about this king. They talk about this king. And every time, it's and he sinned worse than all the kings before him. And then this next guy, he was worse than all the ones before him. Jezebel was the daughter of King Ethbal of Sidon. She was not in Israel. She was not an Israelite. She was not a Jew. She was from outside of the kingdom. Ahab married from outside of Israel. He married a foreign woman, a foreign princess. And he did so, um, he was looking to increase his international prestige. You ever heard of like in Europe where like the king of, you know, prince of England will marry a princess from France to try to build international relations? That was kind of this marriage. She was a trophy wife, is what she was. She was brought over. There was, it, was, it was very much for that. Ahab was looking for outside validation and acceptance. He wanted to be shown that Israel was a player in the world stage and that he could reach out and have this relationship with this neighboring kingdom. He was looking to have them validate by being able to marry. That meant that they were a kingdom of some prominence and someone to be recognized. And by, by nature then, he was somebody to be recognized. Now the problem was, is that Jezebel from Ethbal, you can get a I feel from his name there, she and her family and her nation worshipped Baal. They worshipped a pagan god. They worshipped a different god. And when she moved in and when she came into Israel, she didn't say, well, then I will worship the, the god of my husband and the god of my new nation. She brought Baal with her into the country. And when she did so, um, she brought um, worship to him. And so there were things that she did. And you can read this, First uh, Kings 16 on through. You can get a picture if you want to go back and study that some on your own. Um, all of the things that happened... Um, during this time, but for example, she had altars built, pagan altars, and worship and sacrifice um, to Baal. Uh, she persecuted Jehovah's prophets. It wasn't enough just that now there were competing centers of worship. No, but she actually actively went after prophets of Jehovah and sought to sought to destroy and quash their influence. And it's at this period in history where belief and worship of Jehovah God in Israel began to deteriorate. The introduction of Baal worship in Israel at this time slowly began that process where the people of Israel would turn from God. So, this is Queen Jezebel. This is who Jezebel is. I explained to you who Jojo was. Now, if I tell you you're going a little Jojo, you understand what that means, right? Now you know what happens if I call you Jezebel, right? If you'd asked me before this what Jezebel was, that would have meant um, a lady of uh, bad repute, right? If you'd have said someone was a Jezebel, and that's an old term for us. I was talking to Mark about this before. I'm like, that's what I would have heard the grandma on the um, Beverly Hillbillies. The Beverly Hillbillies grandma would have called somebody a Jezebel, right? And that's as old as it got. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about just that she was sexually uh, promiscuous. It's that she promoted this other lifestyle. So, what does that tell us about the Jezebel and Thyatira? So, that woman in Thyatira is called Jezebel. That's a very strong association. Because it's not just someone like me calling you that. That's God giving you that name. God often would look into people's hearts and rename them. He renamed Simon to Peter because it's the rock. He renames Abram to Abraham, putting his own name in there. He would often give people their name to indicate who they are, not just on the outside, but on the inside. And oftentimes it was something they didn't even see in themselves, that that was on the inside likening her to Jezebel meant that what this woman is doing there in the church is similar, is like what Jezebel did in Israel by introducing Baal worship. That what she's doing in the church right then is so severe and so strong that you should realize that it's just like what tore down the nation of Israel from following God so many centuries ago. That probably was a stark wake-up call to all of a sudden be called that. See, I often don't think that the people that we find to be our enemies are twirling their mustaches knowing that they're doing the wrong thing, right? The people that we think are out there and that are causing harm generally think they're doing the right thing. They say that the best villains to write, if you're going to write a movie or a story, they are the heroes of their own story. They believe they're doing the right thing. This woman, I don't think, if she had been cast in a Disney cartoon, would have been surrounded by lime green smoke and cackling, right? She wasn't that character. I think she was simply somebody who was teaching a teaching that was running counter to Christ's teaching, She didn't know that it was there. But when they said, that Jezebel, whoa, what? It's that bad? It's that strong that I need to listen to it? And that teaching that she is teaching, by that association, is telling us that it will be the start of the deterioration of Jesus' teaching in the city. That that church will begin to become corrupt and will begin to fall because of it. So what's she doing? Well, she's teaching Christians to engage in local pagan customs. Like the rest of the cities that exist in this time, the rest of the churches, they're the minority, right? We, we saw the maps earlier with Keith and Rhoda where we got these wonderful, you know, the United States is a Christian nation. Everybody, there's always a church to go to back then. The majority of the town that you lived in was not Christian. It was Jewish, it was pagan, it was a mix. Specifically she was teaching that she was teaching them to participate in sexual immorality and the eating of food that was offered to idols. The problem was that these local customs that she was teaching that it was okay to participate in were incompatible with Christ. It's not it's incompatible to engage over here and call yourself a follower of Christ. The two don't mix. So what was going on? What's the story? What's happening there in Thyatira? Well, Thyatira is a small village. It's not very much. In fact, we don't know much about it today. Um, It didn't survive throughout history. Um, There's not a lot of archaeology. There's not a lot of things that are known. Um, There is a comment. There's just one verse in Acts 16 uh, where we meet a a woman there named Lydia. And we know that she is a dealer in um, purple dyed purple cloths and other historical accounts let us know that that was kind of this city's industry. That's what they were known for. That's what they did. You know, big cities often have multiple things, but you know, there are small towns. We were watching a show the other night, um, and it was a town in Oregon that produces, I don't know, it was hazelnuts or chickpeas or whatever it was. I don't remember, but it's like 95% of the U.S.'s hazelnuts come from this one town in Oregon, you know? I mean, it's just a ridiculous thing. That's what they're known for, right? Their summer festival is the hazelnut festival, whatever it is, that's them. This town, they did dyed claws. That's what they were known for. And this industry was run by trade guilds, similar to unions that we have today, but there were organizations that run around this that help run this. And all of these different guilds, they would have their own idols. Today, business and religion in the u.s are pretty separate i don't go to work and have to worry that my boss follows a particular god or there's a particular ritual and i have to deal with that but in a lot of history in a lot of nations that's true there's not a mix that religion is ingrained very much in society and so if you were going to work in this industry and you lived in this town so you probably worked in this industry you were going to come across and brush up against the question of what was going to happen when it was time for you to um, participate with some of these idols. Um, There would be offerings made, food offerings, food sacrificed and offered on an altar to these gods, and then there would be a festival and everyone eat from this food. And oftentimes pagan um, worship practices would also include a sexual aspect um, where there would be tents and temples with these priestesses and men would go and engage in sexual acts with them as a form of worship not something that happens in many churches in the u.s today so that seems odd Um, but it is common in other areas and if we look at society just as outside of what we would call places of worship religious worship but we look at the different idols that we have in our lives we're going to talk about this more later Sexual activity in relation to those things that we idol is something that we definitely have in our hearts and our lives. So it's not as foreign as we might think on the top. So these Christians had a choice. They had to choose whether they were going to be active participants in these guilds, they were just going to go and work and go to the festivals and do these things, or they were going to follow Jesus. They were going to reject these things that were not compatible. You can't go to church with a group of Christians and praise Jesus and study his word on a Sunday and then be expected at the midweek to go and offer food up to idols and say, oh, but I'm okay with Baal or I'm okay with so-and-so. Now, this was a cost. There was a cost to follow Jesus for them. This would mean their income. They might lose their job. They might not have work. They might not have be able to go, and then if you don't work in this industry, in this town, there's very few other things you can do. That, of course, impacts their family. Uh, Anyone here who's a breadwinner doesn't want to lose their job, especially if you have kids. That's a lot of pressure to just go and do what people do and just stay, go with the flow and stay in the mainstream because I don't want to disrupt my family and I don't want to disrupt where we're at. And then it's the reputation. Even if you do stand up and you don't participate, you don't do any of that stuff, you've marked yourself as different within a small community. And so maybe you decide that you can help build houses or you can do whatever else they need to do. But are people in that community going to use you? Are they going to come to you? Are they going to give you business because of that? Are you going to be social outcasts? There was a cost. But that woman taught that you could still participate in the guilds and follow Christ. She was saying that it was possible that you can come and follow Jesus and worship him and be a believer and still participate in everything that's going on out there because God knows your heart. And I don't know if that's what she said, but I can hear the story because God knows your heart and it's just food on an altar and it's just whatever it is and it's not a problem. She was teaching that you could pick and choose where you follow Jesus and where you conform to the world. She was teaching that you can pick and choose where you follow Jesus and where you conform to the world. You know, when you first read this passage, it's really easy. Well, I don't eat food offered to idols, and I haven't had any sex in church recently, so I think we're fine. I'm fine. But that's really what's happening. You can pick and choose where you follow Jesus and where you conform to the world. And does that touch a little close to home for any of us? How many of us are guilty of deciding where we want to follow and where we don't? Make it even easier. How many of us, when somebody says something that we should do, Jesus says that to hold hate in your heart is the same as murder. How many of us want to say, yeah, but you don't know what happened. I have a reason to hate her. You haven't had to work for my boss. You don't get to pick and choose. So, Jesus had two condemnations in this passage. The first is of that woman... She had failed to repent. He had given her time to repent. He had had grace with her, shown her mercy, given her time, obviously given her messages. Somehow, this woman had been given opportunities and she had failed and she had refused. And so he said that he would strike her dead. Maybe that's true. We've seen God do that in other places. We don't know what happened to her, but maybe she did fall over dead one day. Maybe it's simply that She was removed from the church. I don't know what the story was. This is that time when that flowery, big language of revelation makes it kind of hard to... It's not as clear as just a letter, right? As just Paul writing this letter. It gets big, and so we don't know. But we do know that she would be removed from the equation one way or the other, and she would no longer have the influence on the church. Jesus was going to make sure of that. To those who would commit adultery with her they would suffer greatly, intensely, excuse me. Those who would commit adultery with her, meaning those who would believe her message, those who would follow that teaching, those who would then go, oh good, I can go to work and I can eat that food and I can go into that temple and that's fine. I can come back with a clear conscience on a Sunday and it's really okay. And it doesn't matter what the pastor and the elders are saying because they, you know, they're just old and stuck in their ways and they don't understand the way it is in the real world. They don't know what it's like to be out there and have to live out here. Those who would commit adultery with her. That is strong language. Jesus is saying you married me. And yet you're being unfaithful with her. You are my bride. Many of us would have the opinion that if someone's spouse cheated on them, that they would be justified in divorcing them. That he was unfaithful and he should go. That she did this and just cut her off. But Jesus is saying, if you're listening to teachings that are from somebody else and run counter to me, I don't share you are my bride, stay with me, be with me. I don't know that we would consider it that strong. By the way, we have many, many testimonies in here of marriages that have suffered through that and God has brought so much healing and restoration into their lives. I don't want to let you walk out this room and think that that attitude necessar- is, is something that we would condone There are times when marriages die and it grieves God's heart. But there are many, many, many opportunities in the course of that where God will bring healing and restoration and you will be brought back together. So if you're in that spot or you've ever been there, there's hope. He condemned her, he condemned those who would commit adultery with her, and he condemned her children those who would continue to follow, those who would maybe even continue to teach this to other people, where her influence would spread through others, and it says that they will be dead. All in all, what Jesus is saying is, I'll take care of this. I will preserve my church. I will preserve my teachings. It's been 2,000 years and the church is still here after so much persecution, after so many people who have taught lessons that have gone way off the rails. And yet the power of the gospel and the power of scripture and the power of Jesus is still present. He will preserve his church. But Jesus' condemnation didn't just start with her because this isn't a letter to that woman in Thyatira. This is a letter to the church in Thyatira. Now, what I love about this is that Jesus apparently took some counseling classes. He apparently has gone and learned how to have crucial conversations. He has gone and learned how to give positive, critical uh, critique. He, He knows the way to do it, right? He gave proper praise before criticism. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Give seven positives before you give the negative. He says that they have their deeds and their love and their faith. Great argument in Scripture and teaching, our teaching in Scripture, excuse me, about whether it is faith or deeds, and it is both. They do not exist in isolation from one another. Deeds and love and faith, these are all equal qualities. He says they have service and perseverance. They're doing the work, They are actively working in the kingdom. They're not just staying home and doing normal things in their lives. They are out there. They are spreading the gospel. They are talking to their neighbors. They are feeding the widows and the orphans. They're doing the work and they're paying the cost. If there's perseverance in the church, that means there's persecution against the church and they are weathering it, weathering it personally, weathering it corporately, and they're doing more. He says, you are doing more than you were at first. So this isn't just a church that's doing the same old, same old. They're constantly searching for new ways to reach out. All wonderful aspects of a church. And yet, and yet, you tolerate that woman. So what does tolerate mean? Couple definitions. The capacity to endure pain or hardship, sympathy or indulgence for beliefs or practices different or conflicting with one's own. That sounds kind of right, doesn't it? She was teaching something different and they were tolerating that. One accusation against the American church is that we are not tolerant of other cultures, that we are not tolerant. Of their beliefs. Another definition: the act of allowing something. And my personal favorite here: the allowable deviation from a standard. The range of variation permitted in maintaining a specific dimension in machining a piece. I was at Honda for a while. And if you ever talk through the weld shop or you talk about any of that kind of stuff, they talk a lot about tolerance. This panel needs to fit to this panel within a three millimeter tolerance. Two's fine, one's A, hey. five, nope. That there, tole- there is a gap, there is a space in which you're allowed a slight deviation, and it is a slight. And I will say that when we had the Hondas, that was one thing, but when the Acura started going through the kind of quality they want out of an Acura, those tolerances were much smaller of how close to accurate it had to be. They were allowing a deviation in the church. They were tolerating a deviation in teaching. And this was what Christ was holding against them. That this tolerance was too great. That it was too far off the mark. We are to offer each other grace... We are to offer each other patience. I know that I sin. I've shared that from here plenty of times. I know that you sin. And we are to have grace with each other while we work through that. But what we're not to do is tolerate it in each other. You hear the difference in that? That means that when Stu, if I can pick on you for a moment, when Stu is struggling with a sin... I can show him grace in waiting and helping him and praying for him and working through that. But what I can never do is tolerate it and say, Stu, that's fine. That's okay. In fact, I'm not sure it's a sin. Early in my Christian walk, I was talking with another Christian man about, um, uh, well, looking at women, right? When you're in your 20s, When you're in your 80s, that's a problem. It doesn't matter, really. There was, I think it was Emery, 86 years old. He's like, I'm like a dog chasing a car. I wouldn't know what to do if I caught one, but I still look from time to time. I loved Emery. Here's the thing. I shared this, that I was struggling with this, and I didn't like it. It, it, didn't, it wasn't what Christ was teaching. Christ is teaching that even if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, it's the same as committing adultery. And the answer that I got back was, well, we're men, and that's just what men are like. And you just need to give yourself grace. And That was accepting a deviation that Jesus doesn't. That was a teaching That man was that woman, Jezebel, in that moment, teaching something into my life that was gonna create a deviation that was too great, that Jesus would not have been happy with, and that he would want to have called out. Jesus' teaching is clear. We are not allowed so-called deep secrets. I can imagine very easily that this woman, it says she called herself a prophetess, that she was teaching something, and she was probably going on about how um, teaching something of that you need to be in the world in order to have an impact of the world. You need to, I mean, there are all sorts of things that we hear all the time. And Jesus says there are no deep secrets. There's no special teaching that you're going to get from some special teacher who has a revelation. Everything that I've taught is very plain to you and it is in Scripture. Stick to it. Stick to the plain teaching. We are called to follow Jesus and reject that which is incompatible with Him. I'm going to give some examples and they might be unpopular. So forgive me if I step on any toes here. I mean to, but forgive me anyway. This was a big topic, right? This thing that uh, she was teaching about uh, participating in the trade guilds and in that worship, that was integrated deep, and that was obviously a major issue that was going on in the church. I tried to think about a major issue that's going on in the church today, and I didn't want to talk about it. I'm not going to spend long on it. But the church's attitudes against homosexuality so much has changed, not only just in the last 30 years, but in the last 5 to 10 in American culture's acceptance, perception of homosexuality, that the church has struggled to get a grip on how to handle it. It just moves so fast that I think we're, 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 we're scattered. And I think we have, we have problems at both ends. If you're probably my age or younger, it's a generational thing. You're probably okay with it. Love is love. And they sh- and gay should be able to marry and there shouldn't be a problem and if I were to preach over the pulpit that homosexuality is sin that would feel old and dated and non-progressive. And yet scripture is clear that homosexuality is sin. And so I have to stand upon that scripture and upon that teaching. I cannot pick and choose it. I cannot deny it no matter what else is said or else I'm that woman Jezebel, teaching a deviation from the standard what Christ has for our lives. I can't do it. But yet, the other swing in our church, because it's this impulse, it's this reaction to the the culture going this way and you feel you need to pull this side to kind of balance the teeter-totter, is that homosexuals or people who practice homosexuality are sinners and they are unforgivable and that it is something you cannot come back from and it is something that is to be railed against we miss the fact that Jesus called sinners to be his apostles his disciples he not he met with them he gave them water he went into their homes he ate dinner he engaged And he did all of that while calling them to repentance. He showed them love. He shared himself. So our job is to share him. He did not reject them. He did not cast them out. But yet he did not deviate from the truth. Their response is their own. And this is true for people who are practicing homosexuality. It's true for any other group that you might have a problem with. This is our response. This is Jesus' response. And we end up swinging to both ends. And I would just say to stick stick with what Christ has taught on either side. Other things, examples. Conflicts with church life. Sunday mornings, youth group, Bible studies, small groups, stay together. Continue to meet together. Be the body together. Fifty years ago, Sunday morning was safe. Nobody did anything because everyone was going to be in church. And now it's hard to be in church because everyone's got to be someplace else. It's going to be a cost. If your kids are going to be on a traveling baseball team and they have games on Sunday mornings, you have to make a choice. What are we teaching our kids is the priority. If we want to go out with friends and we're going to be out on a Saturday night and we're going to be out until midnight, one, two, you better be up in the morning. You don't sacrifice your Sunday morning because of the things that you wanted to do on Saturday night. You know, we talked about sexual worship, which isn't something we do in churches. But sex as an idol, I was thinking about fraternities and colleges and different environments where being sexually active is kind of a cultural expectation, especially among young men where the group where you've got these just hormone-filled 20-somethings Where they're chanting each other on for their own conquests? Or all the stuff we've heard in the news recently? What are the choices we make? Lastly, work and taxes. It's too easy to be honest with people on a day-to-day basis, but take just a few extra deductions this time of year to cheat at work, to slack off, to do different things. Maybe you're called to, maybe you're in sales and they tell you to say one thing and you know it's an absolute lie. It's easier to fudge something. It's easier to do something because it's gonna get ahead or at the very least not get you in trouble with your boss. It's the day-to-day decisions that we make that fall short of God's standard that are too much of a deviation. We have plenty of opportunities Plenty of opportunities, and they almost all come with a cost. I don't stand here as one who is perfect with it, by no means. But I stand here as one who has read the scripture, heard what God has said, and simply shared that challenge to me and to all of us. So how do we respond to this? What are we going to do? Question. Where have we tolerated unbiblical teaching in our church and in our lives? The church is kind of a challenge for me and the other elders and pastors. As we look, as we talk about what's shared over the pulpit and what's going on in the church, to be willing to challenge those things. To be willing to stand in and say, no, this isn't what we're going to teach. This isn't where we're going to be, even though it's easier, even though it's simpler to do. But in our own lives... Because just as God dealt with that woman and cut those things off, He will cut those things off in our own lives too. They will be addressed. Have we committed ourselves to following Christ to the point of paying a cost? So I've got three action items for you this morning. If you ask these questions and there's something, you're like, what am I supposed to do with it? First, learn more. Study When Paul shared in Berea, he commended them that they not only heard what was taught, but they compared it to the Scriptures, and they studied to see what was true. It's too easy in our busy lives to listen to what Joey says and listen to what this pastor says and this one, and then what I kind of feel and go, okay, this is what I'm going to think. Study it. Read it. Read the Scripture. Seek out answers. I went to a Christian seeking help for lust in my life at an early age. I got a bad answer. Was that where I stopped? Yes. No, no. I, <laughs> I went to somebody else because that's, that answer didn't feel right. There was something in my heart that said that's not the way I'm supposed to go. So continue to seek out the answers and learn. The next one, repent. 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 Once you learn the way to go, if you find that you've been going the wrong way, just turn around. I'm not Michael Jackson. You don't want to see that. (laughs) But turn around. Repent. Just make a change. And lastly, I can't remember what the lastly is, so I need it up on the screen. Make the change. Make the decision. This was thinking about when Mike was up here earlier, and they were talking about this as a season of their life that is changing now. And I was picturing a pasture where you're leading your sheep and you're working in this one field and there is a stream that goes across and then there's another pasture on the other side. It's very easy to meander on this side. But you have to make the decision and cross the stream to get to that other point. In our lives, if we're on this side and we decide we have to make the intentional decision that we're going to cross that there's going to be a change and I can tell the difference because I've walked it, I can look to the other side, I can see where I was and now I can see where I am. So I'm just going to lead us in prayer. We're going to take just a minute of silence and just let the Holy Spirit talk to us. Listen to what he has to say. Think about your day. Think about your last week. Think about your life. Think about how angry you got. It's something I said this morning. Does any of that indicate some place where God would have you? He's challenging you. Holy Spirit, just be in this place right now. Not in a hurry. Ask that you would talk to us and speak to us. Lord, I thank you that you love your church and that you protect her. I thank you that you love us as your bride and that you are jealous for us. That when other teaching, that when there are things that would come into our lives and our minds that would lead us astray, that you do not tolerate that that you want that removed and you are passionate about it. Lord, forgive us where we have been unfaithful. Thank you for your grace. As I close in prayer, just if there's anybody that has had something specific, anything heavy on their heart um, that you want to come forward and just do business with God with, you may. I know there's no guitar. We're not setting the mood, but God doesn't need the mood. And if there's not, that's fine. So Lord, just we thank you for this morning. Help us, Father, where we are weak. You do give us more than we can handle. You do allow more into our lives than our fragile commitments can bear. And you do that so that we will reach out to you and we will grab a hold of you and we will ask for your strength. Lord, we ask for your strength this morning. May you be felt palpably in our lives this week. May we not be able to miss your presence. May we know that you are with us. And we all ask this in your name. Amen.